he uh, agreed to uh, do his mission presentation, uh, what's going on with the Corway uh, during our fit time, and we did that this morning at 9, and next week will be part 2 of that in fit at 9 o'clock, and uh, so he's also agreed to uh, preach for us for the next two weeks, uh, today and next Sunday, so we look forward to that. We were uh, talking this past week, and he said to me, I'm going to be preaching from Ephesians chapter 1. And I just sort of looked at him and I said, uh, what verses? And he said, verses 15 to 17. Because I just preached from uh, verses 12 through 14. And so uh, providentially, the Lord gave him that passage and uh, he was sweating it out there for a little bit because he thought he was going to have to get another message together. But uh, we're glad that uh, here, and, and uh, I know you'll be blessed. So, Paul, if you'll come and preach with us, uh, preach for, for us this morning. Well, good morning. I wanted to show you something before we begin. I'll go into it in great detail in the fit time next week, but this is um, this is the first copy of the Salvation History Catechisms in the Northern Korowai language and also in the Indonesian language. Um, I put the both languages side by side and went through Genesis to Revelation in catechism form, question and answer for the Korowai people, but then I realized that There's a lot of Indonesians we have in the village. Uh, There's also speaking Indonesian now, so there's two languages. So I decided to put both languages side by side so that the evangelists that we co-labor with can stand in front of the congregation in the Korowai and teach them the Indonesian language because they can't read the Korowai. I'm the only one and plus one other right now that can read the Korowai once we start literacy training. But they can take the Indonesian language and they can teach that in the church on Sunday mornings or in their daily Bible worship. And then they can also learn the Korowai language while they're doing that. So I kind of made it into a workbook form. Now, this is the efforts of Bethany Bible Church. This is you sent me and Trish to do a work in Indonesia. And so praise God that we have this uh, accomplished Northern Korowai Salvation History Catechism after Eight years of work, uh, it's now in book form to teach literacy. This is your doing. You're part of this. So I thank you for sending us to the Korowai. And I'll leave that copy with uh, Pastor Mark in his office if you ever want to look at it. And again, I'll be talking about that uh, more next week in the fit time because it's a It's a blessing, and it's an answer to prayer that it's finally accomplished. Now we're going to move into... Thank you. Now we're going to move into, Lord willing, next year, the Gospel of Mark, starting to translate that, uh, all 16 chapters, which probably takes several years, but that's a desire I want to do with the translation team with the Korowais. So be praying about that effort, Lord willing, starting next year. Okay, turn your uh, Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1. 
And we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. But I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 to set the stage for this little section in here on prayer. So let's read together, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Bow with me. Father in heaven, I thank you for this text. And I thank you for the time that we have to worship you through the preaching of your word. Father, your word is central. And we thank you for its proclamation here and among the world. Father, thank you for um, the counsel of your will to the praise of the glory of glorious grace that you alone possess. And we thank you for the work of the Spirit in us as we labor to understand Scripture and to pray through it. I pray for each one this morning that you would cause all distractions to be put aside, to open our hearts uh, to receive your teaching. Help me as I speak to be clear, and may your will be done, I pray. And Father, as always, I pray that you would send out more labors into your harvest even among this congregation. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. The counsel of his will. Paul stresses the importance of the will of God four times between verses 1 through 14. Verses 1, 5, verse 8, and verse 11 stress the importance of the will of God. He says in verse 1, by the will of God, He says in verse 5, to the purpose of his will. 
He says in verse 8, to us the mystery of his will. And he says in verse 11, to the counsel of his will. Now, except for verse 1, every time Paul speaks of the purpose of his will or the mystery of his will or the counsel of his will, in those verses, he is describing what God has done concerning our salvation. Galatians 1.4 puts it beautifully, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. This is what brings about thanksgiving. This is what brings about praise to God because we learned from this section that we have nothing to do with our election. We have nothing to do with our redemption. And we have nothing to do with our glorification. It's all of God. So as we look at verses, the meaning, especially the meanings of verses 15 through 17, we realize that verses 3 through 14, and by the way, verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence in the original. 3 through 14 is written to assure us what God the Father has done for us in Jesus Christ and what he's given to us through the Holy Spirit. The work of God in this section is oozing of the Trinity. It's a Trinitarian work. The glorious nature of the Trinity is on display here when you read this section. God the Father, And you see that. I mean, you just take your time through verses 3 through 14 and you see God the Father chose, God the, uh, God the Son redeemed, God the Holy Spirit sealing and keeping until the glorification is finalized. Now, verses 3 through 6 speak of the past. Verses 3 through 6. Three through six, and I might be reviewing a little bit from Pastor Mark, but that's okay because I want to set the tone for verses fifteen through seventeen. Verses three through six speak of the past, our election, that the Father's purpose in the spiritual blessings we received. Verses seven through twelve speak of our present, the redemption we have through Christ. Verses 13 through 14 speak of the future, the culmination of our redemption and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's beautiful. All three sections end with a similar phrase. So the section on the Father, the section on the Son, and the section on the Holy Spirit end with this phrase, to the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of the glory of His grace. And what that simply means is to the praise of his glorious grace. And it's glorious, isn't it? That's verses 6, 12, and 14. The apostle has a response to the Ephesians about this rich theology that we read about in verses 3 through 14. He has a response. And the human mind finds deep, inexhaustible truths here. In these verses concerning our salvation. I mean these are deep truths about salvation. Now what is often overlooked in this chapter. Is that because these deep truths of God in verses 3 through 14. 
are so exalted and so above our humanness, it now needs deep, continuous prayer for the spiritual enlightenment of the church to understand. The church must understand these things. Now, some might say, well, what is, is it, what is it specifically that needs more understanding in this section? Well, I would point out several verses. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Externally or internally, these kinds of things cannot be known in our humanness. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 1 Corinthians 2.10 So that means we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We are dependent upon Him. In order to truly live in these truths, we must understand them. And that's simple language. To to live in something in a particular way, you must understand how to live in that way. We are not expected to live the Christian life without knowledge of it, are we? So, so many Christians, and I I meet so many across the country, so many Christians are frustrated trying to live the Christian life without understanding the principles of it. They just simply don't understand, and they're trying to live it. Our Father gave us everything we need in order to understand and live the Christian life. He gave us everything. There's no excuse. Because Acts 6.4 says, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's what the Lord has given us in the church. Prayer and the ministry of the word. It's enough. So many people. I was talking about this this past week. So many people are looking for so many other options. And right here. It's right in front of them the whole time. It's the ministry of the word and prayer. That's enough. We must understand who we are in Christ. Who we are. And how do we do that? How do we understand who we are in Christ? Well, I'll tell you how. That comes through study and prayer. No study, no prayer, no life in Christ. No life. No true life. Paul's desire for the Ephesian believers is that they appreciate and understand their glorious privileges. They have these privileges. And so Paul is saying, I want you to understand these privileges that that are already yours in Christ Jesus. And the tremendous power, the tremendous power which was required to give Christ to the church as head over all creation. You see, Christ is the head of the church. And Paul here, he wants to pray for them that they would understand And so that's where we come to verse 15. Now, although I believe now you can pray, and as I read through Ephesians, and again, I I, my Bible time, I was reading through Ephesians, so I I came to this section in my Bible reading several weeks ago, and I uh, went, I don't understand verses 15 through 17. What is he trying to say there? 
I said, I want to study it. So this is how it developed, a sermon out of this. But although we can pray all six chapters of Ephesians in some manner, you can, you can pray all six chapters, but there are specifically two prayers in the book of Ephesians that I want to point out to you. The first prayer is what we'll look at in part today. That is chapter 1, verse, verses 15 through 23. First prayer is chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. The main crux of this prayer is found in verse 18, where he says, in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and then he uses this phrase, that you may know. That you may know. Then, in chapter 3, verses 13 through 21, we find his second prayer. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 21 is the second prayer. So in verse 18 of chapter 1, that you may know. I'm praying that you will know something. Now in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, And to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be. That you may be. You need to know so that you can be. The prayer in chapter 1 is for enlightenment. Enlightenment. The prayer in chapter 3 is for enablement. Enablement in the Christian life. So I want to look at several truths from verses 15 through 17. The prayer of enlightenment. Now, there's a New Testament professor, a former New Testament professor, uh, put it like this. And so listen to these words, because I thought... Man, this is, this is very convicting. A person's prayers are the mirror of his inner life. Now, again, I'm speaking to people that are praying. So if you're not praying, this will make hardly any sense. So, and I'll get to that. A person's prayers are the mirror of his inner life. They reflect the depths of his emotions, the tenderness of his affection. The breadth of his sympathies and the sincerity of his devotion. Moreover, a person's prayers are an index to his sense of values. And then he finishes it with this. They reveal the things he considers to be really important. What is really important to you will be reflected in your prayers. Could we say that about our life? What is most important to us in the Christian life? Is it knowing God? Is knowing God important to you? Now, I'm not talking about knowing about God. I'm talking knowing God intimately. Is that important to you? Are we trying to make it through life so as to enter heaven ignorant of the blessings that were freely given to us already in Christ Jesus. That's according to Ephesians 1.3. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They're ours for the taking. Is it just knowledge of facts from scripture that we seek? 
Bible knowledge is good, but is it in itself what God requires? Is it just to make it through the day and proudly proclaim, well, I went to work, I I wasn't late on my bills, and I didn't commit any grievous sin this week. Praise God, I, I made it. Is it to be a theologian and to properly uh, speak about all these deep points of doctrine and and all the things that scripture teaches? What do our prayers herald about our life? Our prayers reveal what we truly desire to know in the Christian life. And you want me to sum up the Christian life in one word? I can sum it up. Obedience. Obedience. You, where you find obedience, you find a true Christian. I was talking to an 80-year-old lady several weeks ago at a church down south. And she came up to me at, after the service. She said, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I'm a, a Christian. And I looked at her and I said, do you love his word? Yes. Are you in prayer? Seeking God in prayer? Yes. Do you love his people? Do you love the church? Do you love to worship? Yes. I said, those are indications that you are a believer. You're living in obedience to what he has proclaimed in his word. In Acts 6, 4, the ministry of the word and prayer with the saints. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The reality of Paul's prayer from Ephesians uh, in verses 15 to 23 is that they would know God better. You see. Paul is praying that they these Ephesians would know God better. That they may know the Ephesians, the church in Asia Minor, all the churches in Asia Minor at that time, and even us, the Bethany Bible Church, must understand our position in Christ and the outward application of that position. So look at me, look at me, uh, at verse, we'll start at verse 15. There's several phrases that I want to highlight. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, just as a way of side note, that verse is parallel to Colossians 1.4. That's interesting. It's parallel. Paul is writing a letter in from prison. He has not seen the Ephesian believers for about four years. Four years. I can't imagine. It's been hard enough being here for several years away from my friends and the church in the Korowai. But he's been gone four years from this church. However secluded as he is from these churches, he receives reports that prove the genuineness of their salvation. And he starts this section in this letter by saying, for this reason. Now, some of you may have the older translation. It might say, wherefore. Uh, some say, therefore. On this account of what I just said. On account of all that is true in verses 3 through 14. I can now go to 15. You see that? 
on the account of all that's true of what I've just written, verses 3 through 14, now I can say this. Because of what took place spiritually in their lives, in verses 3 through 14, Paul can say, therefore, through that account. Especially, especially in verses 13 and 14, which you've heard preached recently, where he said, where Paul said, they heard the gospel, believed, and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I, Paul, can give two affirmations. Two affirmations to commend you for. I can commend you, Ephesians. He says in verse 15, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. And the second one, your love for all the saints. I commend you, Ephesians, for two things. Your faith and your love. You see, these are the defining graces of true Christian character. The unbelieving world cannot understand or produce such fruits as these, can they? They may try, but it's not true. But you, as people who belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passion and desire. Galatians 5.24 You who have done that can now live in evidence of true, genuine faith. In Christ and faithfulness to Christ as you grow in the knowledge of him. Those are the marks of a true church. You want to find a true church, you'll find people that are growing in the word. And people that trust, because really trust is all. It's faith, isn't it? Faith is trust. And it's trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. And Savior. And continuing to exercise that faith to Christ. In displaying the evidences of true Christianity. Evidences. When our gaze is constant at Christ. And submitting to his lordship. And our faith and love are evident to other believers. And even to the unbelieving. Then what happens is they see your positional standing in Christ and a righteous character that makes Christ look great. It makes him look great. It brings him glory. They see Christ, not us. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must be seen and I be forgotten. Now, our faith has an object. And that object is Jesus Christ. There's an object here. And because he says, uh, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, uh, in the Lord Jesus. You see that? See that prepositional phrase? That's the object of our faith. In the Lord Jesus Concerning the phrase, faith in the Lord Jesus, whether Paul is speaking of the Ephesians' initial believing acceptance of the gospel, or their continuing outworking, exercising of this faith to the Lord is the question. Which one is it? 
Is it the initial act of saving faith or is it this continuous outworking progression of their faith being exercised and being evident among the world? Which one? That was my question. Well, after studying this, I believe what Paul is saying is when he says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, he is referring to their faith that is active, alive, and producing good works. I do not believe Paul is referring to their initial act of faith when they were saved because the original language, the original language actually means the down among you faith. If you translated it literally, the down among you faith. This means that their faith is moving outwardly in their everyday lives. That's interesting. So that proves that he's talking about the active, ongoing, outward effect, uh, faith that is being exercised, outwardly displayed in these Ephesian believers. Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. See that? It's outworking. Galatians 5.6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You find a true church, you find one that's working out their faith in love. There is a faith that is exercised day by day in constant devotion to Christ for living out this Christian love. That kind of faith that Paul uh, commends them uh, for produces love. This kind of faith produces love. Now, we know, you know from teaching here that this kind of love is agape love. It's the Greek word for love. Paul says in verse 15, and your love toward. Now, this is a caring love. A love that sacrifices one's own desires for the benefit of the one being loved. This is a love produced by the Holy Spirit as the believer yields to him. Christians do not pick and choose whom they will love in the body of Christ in the church. They don't pick and choose. Because the Christian love, he says, and your love toward all the saints. See that? All the saints. You and I are not to pick and choose whom we love. There might be people that annoy. There might be people that are unloving. But we are commanded to love them through the faith that is exercised day by day in the body of Christ. Philippians 2.2 Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same Love. You see, faith without love is not faith. It's just not. Faith without love is not faith. Now, you might say, well, I have faith, but I just don't really, I don't really show that kind of love to people. I don't have it. Then I would venture to say you don't have faith because it's a display. It is evidence that your faith is genuine. That's what he's pointing to here. That's why he, he moves in verse 15, that he says, faith in the Lord Jesus. And then he says, and love. You see? Faith comes first. 
Christian love proves your faith is genuine and it's for all the saints. When a church like this faithfully displays this Christian love toward each other, what will happen will be an explosion of unity that the world will grasp at to understand and they will say, what is happening over there at Bethany Bible Church? They won't understand it. Paul is commending the Ephesians for this kind of faith that produces love that will really, in essence, fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. There it is. It's not me that said it. It's the word of God. Whoever does not love abides in death. This church and all the churches in Minnesota, even into the remote jungles of Papua, can have the richest, soundest doctrine and theology in the believers' minds every day with good exegesis, but without love, it is as if it is as if it were a noisy gong and cymbal. This love does not love with word, with word or with tongue, but indeed. And in truth, 1 John 3.18. Now, of course, we know from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, that this love did not last for the Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. We know it just, it left. I have this against you that you have left your first love. May that never be said of us. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. See, that's what Paul's pointing at here. If you love one another, they'll know that you're my disciple. And he receives the glory from that. The apostle is committed to pray for these saints uh, in Asia Minor, according to verse 16, because of their faith, uh, because of verse 15 of their faith and love toward all the saints. But what does Paul ask the father on their behalf? That's a question. What does Paul ask the father on their behalf? Look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There is purpose behind Paul's request. We know there is purpose for this request by the clause that he uses here. That. That the God. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of him. That means there is a definite end in sight for them. According to verse 18, that end is that you may know. You see. There are unending blessings that are already belonging to you, Ephesians, and Paul, and Bethany, in Christ Jesus. So is verse 17 talking about some of those blessings that are ours? 
Absolutely. They're ours. What he mentions in 17 are ours in Christ Jesus. But through the sovereign plan of God, how do we receive them? We must pray more and more and more and more without ceasing. Did the Ephesians possess these blessings? Absolutely. They were theirs, blessings already in Christ, but they needed to increase so that what was being seen and heard among them could grow. Could grow. Ephesians 4.13 says, Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. That's the goal for your life and for mine. You want to witness to someone and you want to tell them what your goal is in life? Ephesians 4.13. Unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. Now this specific prayer in verse 17 is directed by Paul to God The Father for the Ephesians. Now, this might seem simple, but we know when we pray, we pray to the Father, right? Father in heaven, heavenly Father, Father God in heaven. We pray to the Father in Christ's name, right? Paul understands this because he says... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this phrase in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting. He uses it again. Now, what does that mean? The God of our, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How could, how could Jesus have a God? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How could Jesus have a God? Well, because of for the sake of time, I'll put it like this. This phrase is speaking of our Lord Jesus in his humanity. The God-man worshiping and being obedient to God the Father. That's what that phrase is pointing to. Listen to John 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, your Father, my God, and your God. You see? This is Christ in his humanity that Paul is referring to here when he uses that phrase, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. This in no way takes away from Jesus' Jesus' eternality or Godhead. He was, he is, and he is to come. He will always be. He is God, and in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2.9 Now there are several reasons why Paul uses this phrase, God of our Lord Jesus Christ. First... Paul is making clear to the Ephesians that the exclusive human mediation of Christ Jesus is the only way to the Father. 
We know that. We believe that. We should die for that truth. It's the only way to the Father. There's no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the Old Testament, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, God is called, his titles, God of Israel. The God of Abraham. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, in the New Covenant, he is known as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Before, he was a God of a singular nation. Now, in the person and work of Christ, he's a God to all nations. Speaking of those nations that repent and believe in the incarnate Son. The second reason Paul uses this language He wants to make it clear that the Lord Jesus is distinguished from the ancient pagan Greek gods. Now, when I saw this, I thought that was really smart on Paul's part. Because we have to do that in the Korowai. I have to make a distinction between the evil spirits and what they believe in their cosmology and their worldview against this sovereign Omniscient, omnipresent God. So he's making a a distinction between the ancient pagan Greek gods with this phrase. Those gods were thought to appear in human form. Those gods were thought to appear in human form on the earth. Now, if you remember in Acts chapter 14, verse 11 through 12. He says, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us. They've come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, Paul, Hermas, because he was the chief speaker. They believed this. They believed gods roamed the earth. So that's why Paul uses, those two reasons are why Paul uses the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he uses another phrase. Why would he sandwich in this prayer, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then comma, the Father of glory? Why would he put Father of glory in there? Isn't it enough just to say the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you, but he says the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory? What in the world is he pointing at here? Well, this is a Hebrew idiom for the phrase, the glorious father. The glorious father. It could read that way. Our translations don't place the article that is really there in the original. It literally reads, the father of the glory. The father of the glory. Calvin even pointed out this when I read about him. He says, that God, comma, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the very character and nature of who the Father is. He is glory. He is splendor. 
He is majesty. And, and you just try to put the words into human form and it's like you're just spitting them out because the words just don't seem adequate enough to express who he really is. He's, he's splendor. He's majesty. What, what is better than majesty? It's just hard to put it into human words. But this is who he is in his character. The Ephesians do not need to run around in a panic searching for what is already theirs. Because he says here, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you. This is why Paul starts this way to show them that this glorious father is not greater in essence than the Lord Jesus. Now, hear me again, because there's a lot of there's a lot of debate and arguments out there about the eternality of the subordination and the essence I'm here to say that Paul shows this, he starts this way to show that this glorious father is not greater in essence than the Lord Jesus, but is equal in nature. That's a beautiful truth. Notice the last phrase in verse 17. The last phrase. May give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. We know these are believers. So Paul is not asking for the father to open their eyes to for salvation, to see the spiritual truth of the gospel. They already are believers. So why pray this way? Why does he say, I pray that the father glory may give you the spirit of wisdom. And revelation in the knowledge of him. So why pray these two things? It's sad that many believers are not satisfied with what is theirs in Christ Jesus. You might have come across some people like that. Many are looking for something extra. And it's so prevalent in our age. Just it was in in the patristic period as well. It's evident today. So many people are looking for something extra. Something out of the ordinary. That the Christian life does not have. It's as if many were looking for more of Jesus. And they are never satisfied. I remember one evening in the jungle. We were... uh, I can't remember. I think it was in the evening. No, it was in the morning. Uh, some some people, some Donnie people, came up to the to the house and said, "We saw Jesus last night." And I said, "You did?" I said, "Yes, we saw Jesus at the airstrip." I said, "Wow." They must have seen a bright light and thought it was Jesus, and they were all in a in a uproar up at the airstrip. And so I just took the opportunity to show them that that's not possible. So many people are looking for something extra. And the Colossian church struggled with this truth. They believed they were missing something from God and looked for it in other means. And you know what that did? That led to heresy. When you look outside the word of God, you're leading to heresy. Second Peter 1.3 says that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. We have everything we need in Christ. Believer, do you, do you cherish that? Do you believe that? 
First, he says, we have the spirit of wisdom in verse 17. So he prays. Father of glory, God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, I pray that he may give you, please give them the spirit of wisdom. Now, we know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is the author of wisdom. He is the one that imparts wisdom. He is the one that imparts revelation to us in this life. He is the source of knowledge. 1 Corinthians 2, speaking of wisdom, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. But the word spirit here, now this is where I really, uh, I spent extra time because I just was sure. But now I am. The word spirit that Paul uses here does not refer to the Holy Spirit. I don't believe it does. Some do. I read behind a lot that believe it refers to the Holy Spirit. I do not believe it refers to the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. Father of glory, give them the spirit of of wisdom. I believe it is used here in a similar way where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Sometimes this word is used in the scriptures for attitude or influence or character. Now that makes sense to me. You've heard people say before, well, maybe you've heard people say, well, he's in high spirits today. It's the same way Paul uses this here, referring to an attitude or character of humility. Paul prays, give these believers a character of spiritual wisdom. You see that? The wisdom Paul is speaking about is a wisdom of the fullness of godly knowledge. See, if you want godly knowledge in your Christian life, you must pray for it. Father, show them how much they have in the Lord Jesus. Reveal that kind of wisdom, the fullness of godly knowledge. Reveal that to them so that they can know you better. That's our goal, to know God better. Now, Paul prays, give these, uh, the second part here. He says, we have a special revelation. May give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul prays for revelation for these believers. That simply means to impart knowledge from The divine from God. We need to know what we have in Christ before we can use it. So he's praying, impart to them this knowledge of yourself so that they can know you better. Now, this is nothing earthly or physical. But this is a knowing, as the verse says, in the knowledge of him. This means a thorough knowledge, a full knowledge that is true of God himself. What better way to spend your life than to know God better and better and better each day? 
To have a sweet, intimate communion with Christ, we must have a character of wisdom and a character, uh, a character of wisdom and of revelation that grows in understanding of who the person of Christ is, his person and work, his greatness and his power toward us that believe. If you don't believe, there's no power. And the means to this knowledge and have it grow in us is simple. It's just so simple, but so hard for us. It's through the word and it's through prayer. I can't say that enough. That is one thing that the Lord has shown me over the last few years. It's through the word and it's through prayer. You want to know God better? You seek him in his word. That's how he reveals himself. And you might say, well, I just can't remember anything when I read. You might say that. I've had that excuse before when I was sick. I just can't remember anything. What's the point? I'll tell you what the point is. There was a grandfather told his grandson, take that bucket down to the river, down the steep hill, fill it up and bring it back to me. Grandson obeyed. He said, okay. He went down the steep hill, grabbed a pail of uh, in the uh, bucket of water, Walked back up the hill. By the time he got to his grandfather, it was empty. He looked down and he saw a hole in the bucket. He said, Grandpa, there's a hole in this bucket. I need another one. He said, no, go down again. Try it again. He went down again. Maybe he thought he'd run a little faster this time. Came back up the hill. Empty. This time he's a little frustrated. He says, Grandfather, why are you doing this? I, there's no, this has got a hole. He said to his grandson again, go down the, to the river again one more time. He was obedient, although disgusted. He said, okay. He ran down. This time he said, you know what? I'm going to fill it up and I'm going to run as fast as I can. And I'm going to hold the bucket in a different way. Ran back up. It's all he could do to keep the water in. And by the time he got to his grandfather, the bucket was empty. He said, look, again, why did you make me go three times? The bucket's empty. And the grandfather looked at his grandchild and said, look inside the bucket. Look inside. Grandson peeped in the bucket. The grandfather said, you see that bucket? It's clean. The inside is clean. You might feel that you can't do anything in this Christian life or remember anything or feel so inadequate in your prayers. But I tell you, if you're consistent in the word of God and in prayer, you will be changed. And he will fill you with the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of him. And don't worry if you can't remember it. You're clean. You'll be clean. That's the goal in our Christian life, isn't it? To be clean, to be obedient. For those of us who don't know the Lord, our need is for wisdom and obedience. For those of us who know the Lord, our need is for wisdom and obedience so that the Lord can bless us with the blessings that are already ours in him. We just ask. Just ask. Just ask like the widow over and over. You won't bug the Lord to death. He loves it. Just ask and ask and ask. Be committed to pray this way as Paul prayed for the Ephesians. If you do not know the Lord, Maybe you're playing the hypocrite. Maybe you just, 
yeah, I'm a Christian and you don't have faith or love or even know what they mean. My plea to you is the day today is the day of salvation. There is a father in heaven. There is a father in heaven. That is pleased in his justice to give you wrath, to give you his wrath. There's also a father in heaven who is pleased in his mercy to forgive. To forgive. Run to Christ. Flee to him. Flee to him. Repent, believe, and get in the word and pray. And you will, as he says, you will know. Your hearts and eyes will be enlightened and you will know what is the hope to which he has called you. Let's do that in our Christian life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text and the few minutes with these brothers and sisters. I thank you for your kindness to us this morning. And we realize that we need to be more committed in prayer. And we realize that we are weak without your power working in us through the word and the spirit. So we ask you now to um, change us, to make us more in the image of your son, and to be pleased to give us what is already ours, and that is the character of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paul, for that. Uh...